Good evening, this is Rob McClure, along with Vicki Iden, bringing you your local news live from our studio and our home via the WORT studio on Bedford Street in Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. Five Wisconsin mayors, including Madison's, have been subpoenaed as part of a GOP investigation into last year's presidential election. So, too, has the state's Elections Administration Agency. The election probe, led by former state Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, targets officials in Madison, Milwaukee, Green Bay, Racine, and Kenosha, all cities where President Biden received more votes than Donald Trump. Critics of the election probe say the investigation is designed to undermine the legitimacy of elections. The Associated Press reports that only four votes out of three million cast last fall were found to be fraudulent. We'll have more on this story in just a moment. Dozens of Madison Madison West High School students staged a walkout today over what they say is mistreatment of one of their former teachers. According to the Capital Times, Dina Zorco, who was a Spanish teacher at West up until October 1st, had been teaching her classes virtually because she is immunocompromised. Now, Zorco is being transferred to MMSD's new Madison Promise Online program in a move Zorco's attorney says she was against. A district spokesperson told the Capital Times that Zorco applied for the new role and she wasn't forcibly transferred. Three potential redistricting maps are before Dane County. Soon, there will be only one. Dane County's Nonpartisan Redistricting Commission presented three drafts of the maps to the Dane County Board of Supervisors on Monday. Tonight, the County Board's Executive Committee is meeting to decide which map to recommend to the entire board. A final draft is scheduled for next week, with the plan set to be finalized in mid-November. And now for your COVID-19 numbers. The state health department is reporting a seven-day rolling average of 2,584 new confirmed cases. All counties in Wisconsin remain at high or very high activity levels of COVID-19. Meanwhile, the Wisconsin State Journal reports that the number of COVID cases in the Madison Metropolitan School District continues to climb. The district has reported 170 new cases over the past two weeks. That's up from 144 for the previous two-week period. And now on to the rest of the day's news. At its meeting yesterday, Madison's Common Council approved measures to purchase two sites to use as future homeless shelters. One of those sites, located at 2002 Zaire Road, was previously rejected as the location for a permanent men's homeless shelter. Our producer, Jonah Chester, has the story. Last night, Madison's Common Council voted 14-6 to in favor of purchasing property at 2002 Zaire Road. The former big box store will be used as a temporary men's homeless shelter and a, quote, long-term site for redevelopment. In May, the site was rejected as the location of a permanent men's homeless shelter. Alder Gary Halverson, who represents the district the shelter will be located in, voted in opposition both times. Speaking at yesterday's council meeting, Halverson expressed concern that the temporary site may not be so temporary and could become Madison's de facto shelter. This resolution doesn't make any sense to me. We did address this earlier this year. Uh, There's many, many reasons as to why this location is not the right location. The only thing I see different from the last resolution that was failed. So this resolution is now we're saying it's temporary. 
which honestly, I'll have feedback from the constituents and myself, very concerned that it's not going to be temporary. Currently, Madison runs its men's shelter out of the former Fleet Services building on First Street. That site is scheduled to eventually become Madison's public market, but the city needs to move its shelter operations out before that project can move in. Halverson also expressed concerns that the new purchase and the purchase of a similar site on Bartillon Drive were rushed to council. Both resolutions were introduced just two weeks ago. Halverson organized a neighborhood meeting to discuss the proposals on Sunday. Some of the feedback that day was they didn't even know this was happening and uh, had stumbled across it. Alder Sherry Carter also said that the council was rushing into the decision. When government rushes in, it usually crash and burns. Halverson was joined in opposition to the purchase by Alders Barbara Harrington-McKinney, Charles Miadzi, Nazar Wahalie, Syed Abbas, and Sherry Carter. All of those except Wahalie opposed the initial May proposal. So what changed this time around? Well, back in May, Alders voted 14 in favor and 5 against purchasing the Zaire Road property. But because that measure would have altered the city's 2021 budget, it required at least 15 yes votes to pass. This time, the city is pulling funds from a separate land banking fund and land acquisition fund. That means the measure needed just a simple majority or 11 alders to pass. The city will spend more than $3.2 million to purchase and overhaul the Zaire Road site. The city will also be pulling about $900,000 from the land banking fund to purchase property at 1902 Bartillon Drive. While the Zaire Road site is a temporary shelter operation, the Bartillon Drive site will provide the city with both short-term and long-term options to address homelessness. Neither resolution states any specific long-term projects for the site. Halverson, whose district also includes the Bartillon Drive site, said that ambiguity was a major sticking point for his constituents. The ambiguity of it, I think, is where we're running into some challenges with some of the residents and constituents, as well as myself. Also yesterday, the Common Council passed a resolution recognizing this coming Monday, October 11th, as Indigenous Peoples Day. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. The time is now 6.12 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Well, as we heard in the headlines, Madison Mayor Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway has been subpoenaed and ordered to appear in Brookfield on October 22nd. The reason? An election that happened 11 months ago. We'll pass it on to our producer, Jonah Chester, from here. When Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway appears in Brookfield on October 22nd, she'll be compelled to provide testimony and a trove of thousands of pages of documents as part of a Republican-led investigation into the November presidential election. Rhodes-Conway says that she will comply with the investigation, but she's asking Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to move the process out from behind closed doors and into the open. The taxpayer-funded investigation is being led by former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who's been allocated nearly $680,000 to conduct the audit. Earlier today, just down the block from the state capitol, Mayor Rhodes-Conway addressed reporters regarding her subpoena. Here's what she had to say. 
Well, welcome and thank you for joining us at short notice. Not too many moments ago, I was subpoenaed by Speaker Voss and asked to go to a strip mall in Brookfield to speak to Attorney Gableman behind closed doors about the 2020 election and to bring with me hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. I believe that this subpoena is a mockery. If this was a serious investigation, it should be treated seriously. I am always happy to walk the two blocks to our state capitol and address the speaker or any committee that he might choose. But these issues should never be discussed behind closed doors in a strip mall. They should be discussed openly and in front of the public and the media the way that I am doing right now today. If I were invited up to the Capitol to have that conversation with the Speaker or any committee, I would tell Speaker Voss that Madison ran a completely transparent, fair, and safe election in the middle of one of the worst pandemics our nation has ever faced. In April of 2020, we had 1,400 poll workers pull out due to safety concerns. And we recognized that we were gonna need more resources to train and pay new poll workers, to help us deal with an absolutely unprecedented influx of absentee ballot requests, and then to process those absentee ballots, and to open and staff curbside voting locations across the city, and to install drop boxes in front of our fire stations, to make sure that people had a safe and secure option to return their ballots, and to otherwise make sure that both poll workers and the public were kept safe from COVID-19. When the legislature failed to provide any resources to Wisconsin communities to help run safe elections, we, along with many other communities in this state and across the nation, applied for funds from a respected not-for-profit group called the Center for Tech and Civic Life. There were 216 Wisconsin communities that received funding from the Center for Tech and Civic Life. 49 cities received grants. Those cities include Brookfield, where I've been asked to appear in a strip mall, Fond du Lac, Janesville, Waukesha, Marionette, and many more. 49 villages were funded, including Palmyra, Iron Ridge, and Endeavor. 101 towns were funded, including Peshtigo and Milton. 16 townships received funding, including Troy and Lima, and Marathon County also received funding. I'm not sure, because honestly, I'm not sure about anything on this investigation, but I don't believe any of those communities that I just named are being subpoenaed and asked to show up in a strip mall in Brookfield. And I can't speak for those communities, but here in Madison, I can say that I am proud that we secured the resources we needed to pay our poll workers a pandemic bonus and to make sure that our elections were fair, safe, and fully functional. I am proud that we secured 14 
bright blue drop boxes like many other states and cities across the nation did to facilitate pandemic voting. I am proud of our city clerk, Mary Beth Wetzel Bow, and every single clerk in this state who rose to this unprecedented challenge. I am proud of every Madison poll worker, from the seasoned veterans to the unemployed restaurant workers to the high schoolers who stepped in and stepped up to make sure that we could open our polling places and who made sure that voting was safe. Thanks to all of these folks, there were zero outbreaks of COVID-19 associated with our elections here in Madison. Unfortunately, after the election, there was an outbreak of almost, almost immediately, of false and self-serving and unsubstantiated claims about improprieties in our election. After the November 2020 election, these unfounded allegations exploded. The Trump campaign requested a partial recount. We were happy to comply. There is a full recount of the presidential election in Dane and Milwaukee counties, and the results were upheld by the courts. There have already been rulings in court on many of the allegations that Attorney Gableman is supposed to be investigating, and no wrongdoing by Madison or any other municipality has been found. A Wisconsin federal court upheld the Center for Tech and Civic Life grants as legal, as did courts in many other states. And so I think the burden is on Speaker Voss and Attorney Gableman to defend these subpoenas and why they are necessary. This constant bashing of Wisconsin elections and of our wonderful clerks and poll workers is taking a toll. It's taking a significant toll on their time, distracting them from their current duties and preparations for future elections. It's taking a toll on their time by making them deal with endless and costly open records requests and with people marching into their offices to examine record after record. And it's taking a toll on their health and their peace of mind. Our clerks have received death threats. They've received harassment. This is unfair and it's unprecedented. Our poll workers and our clerks across the state of Wisconsin do an incredible job and they should be thanked not harassed. This constant rehashing of the 2020 election is not only demoralizing for our clerks, it is corrosive to our democracy. There is no wrongdoing to investigate which justifies Sabina's and interrogations. And although they may not like the laws that they are investigating, that is what they are investigating how clerks complied with election laws that were in place at the time of the election. The legislature's attempts to change those laws is an acknowledgement that the clerks followed the law in place for the election. And I have to say, there's a lot of Republicans that won elections using those same laws. The same ballots, the same voting equipment, the same polling places that voters used to elect President Biden and other Democrats. Either all of those elections were legitimate or Republican legislators, including Speaker Voss, 
were not legitimately elected. I understand that Attorney Gableman said yesterday that he does not understand how elections work. On that, we can agree. I'd be happy to take your questions. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Last week, a Madison hospital announced it was ending its midwifery program. However, after public scrutiny, SSM Health has walked back the decision for now. For more, we turn to WORT reporter Jade Isiri-Ramos. Late last week, SSM Health leaders decided to end their midwifery program at the end of 2021. The Cap Times reports that leaders cited low demand for their in-house midwives and said they would provide access to midwife services through community partners. Still, the decision will leave about 100 pregnant patients in search of new midwives and the hospital's midwives out of a job. After days of backlash, SSM Health announced that the program would continue until a sustainable model is in place. Melissa Fall gave birth to her first baby last year with the midwives. She started her pregnancy with an SSM obstetrician, but later switched to care from the midwives. She says the time and care they were able to give her is what she had wanted for her birth. This is a really unique program that they have to have midwives in the hospital. Um, it is tr- true, I think, that many women choose to have midwives in a birthing center or in a home birth. But I think having midwives in a hospital really opens up a lot of opportunity to break health disparities um, in the community, especially uh, in Madison. And I just think like those four women really put so much care and so much energy into their patients. Claire Baker is a doula in Madison. She is 24 weeks pregnant with her first baby and a patient of the SSM midwives. She was planning to have a home birth, but had to pivot due to health concerns. Then to also find out that my hospital-based midwives were maybe not going to be an option. It was just feeling like a lot of choices were being taken away from me in a really short, short amount of time. Baker is planning to stay with the midwives until her birth. She had an appointment with them today where they said they will continue to update her regularly. And now she has a backup OB in case the program dissolves before her baby is born. But Baker says she is less sure if she will stay with SSM in the future. feels like the decision was made in a silo without really including people who are on the ground and know what the needs of the community are. I think it's just made it very clear where their values are. (laughs) Lauren Brockman says her wife is seven weeks pregnant, and they were excited to go back to SSM midwives for their second child. You know, as a a lesbian couple in this um, community, you know, you you don't walk into St. Mary's and feel super welcome. You know, having Emily with us, this is her wife. This is not her sister. This is not her friend. Um, She was such a great buffer for us. So I did not need to explain 30 times who I am because I'm just as much a mother to our daughter as as my birthing wife is. And so um, that was so important to us. Katie Rice is a doula in Madison. Rice sees her role as a doula as a person who provides mental, emotional, and informational support to pregnant people. She says that people should have access to midwifery if that's what they want. This person walks into their birth having dreams and expectations and hopes for how it goes. We know that midwives provide holistic evidence-based care. Um, And so it should be available to those who want and need it. This program makes it possible, especially for those who might not be able to pay out of pocket for someone who provides midwifery services in, in people's homes and not in the hospital. 
Jennifer Amistel is a labor nurse at St. Mary's and has worked with midwives since the program started. She just actually became a certified midwife herself, something she credits the SSM midwives with making happen. Um, and I just saw like how dedicated they were to their patients and the amount of time that they spend at the bedside doing labor support, doing education, and just being present, which I think is a really huge part of being a midwife. These midwives are just phenomenal at that. Amistel says the midwifery program is especially important for patients who don't have a choice on their insurance provider. To take this as an option away from um, families who are wanting to have midwifery care and don't have an option, um, I think it's just, it's so disheartening to me, um, especially when we're trying to focus so heavily on birth inequity and the differences in outcomes um, for, you know, for black women compared to white women. And we know that midwifery care can bridge that gap and help provide better outcomes. A 2018 study by the American College of Nurse Midwives finds that among women with low-risk pregnancies, midwifery care is associated with more positive health outcomes. And that could help reduce disparities in a country where black mothers are three times more likely to die in pregnancy than white mothers. According to data from the CDC, Wisconsin has the highest black infant mortality rate in the nation. And a 2019 report finds that in Dane County, black babies die at least double the rate of white babies. Black babies are also twice as likely as white infants to have low birth weights. Public Health Madison Dane County, which issued that report, attributes the disparity to social and economic challenges caused by discrimination and structural racism for black mothers. Last year, protests led by local black doulas highlighted these disparities in care and outcomes. Speakers describe their experience as black women receiving care at Madison's hospitals, including at St. Mary's Hospital, which is operated by SSM Health. At the time, St. Mary's president, Kyle Nondorf, says he was committed to mitigating racial disparities. SSM Health responded to WORT's request for comment by saying an update on the situation is expected tomorrow. A protest to save the midwifery program is scheduled for 3 p.m. this Sunday at St. Mary's Hospital. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jada Siri Ramos. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half of the show. We've got a lot more stories coming at you. We will, as we do every Wednesday, get the catch-up in local government news on Downtown Abbey. Madison in the 60s will bring us headlines from October of 1961. And we'll see a storm, which we saw a couple of days ago, come swinging back into the neighborhood for a second hit. I'll tell you how that's going to go. And uh, a warming uh, forecast after that. So all the details in about 15 minutes. But first, we'll take a break and check in on World Headlines with the BBC. Stay tuned. now, and you're listening to the local evening news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, along with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Do you know what the city council is up to this week? How about the Dane County Board? 
Each week, we turn to the Cap Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. Here's the latest from Becker on all that is local on this episode of Downtown Abbey. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as always, by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, how you holding up this week? I am doing pretty well, Jonah. How about yourself? I'm doing just fine and dandy. Uh, we got a lot of local government news ground to cover here today. There's been a lot happening at the city level. Let's go ahead and dive in here. Starting off the top, Madison City Council alders could be required to show proof of vaccination or a weekly negative COVID-19 test. Why are alders backing that proposal? Give me some of the background there. Yeah, so City Council President Syed Abbas, Vice President Arvina Martin, and Alder Regina Vitiver are sponsoring this resolution, which would require alders to provide evidence that they are fully vaccinated or do weekly COVID-19 testing. And it would need to be a negative test result, of course. Um, So Syed Abbas told me that it's important for alders to follow the same rules as city staff, and the resolution looks ahead to when the council may meet in person again. Um, In August, the council delayed plans to return to meeting in person due to COVID-19 cases increasing. So I haven't heard if that's going to change anytime soon, um, but I'm curious uh, what that might look like when it does. Now, this resolution was included on the consent agenda for introduction only. So this just means it's out in the world right now, it's public, and it will be debated at um, future committees and at the city council. Uh, Vice President Arvina Martin also added that, you know, it's important for city leaders to do their share to keep people safe, and that sends a good message that city leadership is still, um, you know, thinking about this issue. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi and Madison Mayor Safir Conway announced new workplace rules for their employees in August. Um, So within the city, those rules were codified in an administrative rule, and under this resolution, the council would apply that rule to themselves. The resolution states that the city of Madison has a duty to promote healthy and safe practices for its employees and communities. Uh, Alder Vitiver said that the resolution for her stemmed from a question she had after receiving an email to city staff with directions about how to provide vaccination status information to supervisors, she didn't know if it applied to alders. She also said that alders should demonstrate that the council believes vaccinations as a public health measure are needed to end the pandemic. Um, So, of course, a bit of uh, a vaccination data update for you all. According to public health, 84.9% of the eligible population, meaning 12 years old and older, in Dane County have received at least one dose of the vaccine. And moving right along here, we had a little bit about this in the front half, but let's revisit for people who are joining us in the back half of the show. At City Council last night, alders voted to buy two properties to be used for homeless services. One of those was a site that the council had already voted on. Give me the update on that. Yeah, it was a bit of deja vu for some as Madison City Council voted for a second time, and this time successfully, on buying a vacant big box store near East Town Mall to use for future homeless services. The city's goal with this is to develop this property at 2002 Zaire Road as a temporary men's homeless shelter and also consider the location as a long-term site for redevelopment. Alders voted 14 to 6 
to spend the $2.6 million to buy the approximately 31,500 square foot building on Zyre Road, and also $580,000 to prepare the site for use as a shelter for homeless men. Um, Homeless men are currently staying overnight at the former Fleet Services building, which is on First Street. So, as we said, this is the second time the City Council has voted on this property on Zyre Road. In May, the Madison City Council didn't approve buying this property. Um, The measure, which required 15 votes at the time, failed by one. The proposal that was adopted last night required only a single majority of 11 votes because it will use funds in the Economic Development Division's land banking capital program instead of amending the budget. And making changes to the budget is what triggers that uh, supermajority vote. Now, Alder Sherry Carter, Gary Halverson, Barbara Harrington-McKinney, Charles Miadzi, Nazar Wahelie, and Council President Abbas voted against buying the property. And, and all but Wahelie previously opposed uh, the Zyra Road site becoming a permanent shelter location in May. Uh, Wahelie was excused from the May meeting. Halverson, who represents the area that the property is located, said at the meeting that there's a, quote, false sense of urgency around this property. And he said his constituents are concerned the site could eventually house a permanent shelter and that a shelter would inhibit future development of the East Town area. At the beginning of the pandemic, men who um, are houseless stayed at a temporary shelter at Warner Park. And prior to that, downtown churches provided shelter to homeless men in their basements for decades. And currently, they are being served at the former Fleet Services building at 200 uh, North First Street. This building is slated to become the future public market, and work to convert that garage could begin next fall. So there is somewhat of a, you know, of a deadline on this, and uh, city staff have said that you know, having this location at Zyre Road um, means that there is an option uh, to have you know, a temporary site for people to go. The city council also voted to buy another site, and it's the site of a former sports bar on the far east side on Bartillon Drive, and they agreed to spend $855,000 in addition to about $40,000 for environmental studies and other costs to, um, to buy this property. It includes a building that's been badly damaged from a fire, and according to the resolution, would provide the city with short-term and long-term options to address homelessness. Halverson and Abbas supported a motion that didn't pass to refer this decision um, until November 2nd. And they said it would give time, you know, more time to hold more meetings and, you know, discuss this with residents who neighbor the property. Uh, Halverson said that his issue and some of the issues with residents and constituents is the, quote, ambiguity of the plans. Um, And they are a bit unknown as the city, you know, is working to acquire properties to develop in the future um, as places um, to provide services to the homeless. Now, there's a lot of things kind of up in the air, so some of those details haven't been worked out yet. Um, the city council ultimately adopted this resolution to purchase the property on Barntilla Drive with Halverson voting no. Um, and the elders in support of the proposal, which included Nikki Conklin, um, you know, really stressed that now is the time uh, to, you know, to move forward on these properties. Last but certainly not least, it's operating budget week in Madison. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway introduced a $358.6 million spending plan for next year. Give me some of the key things to know about that budget. Yeah, so it's a, it's a big budget. <laughs> the, mayor, the mayor said that her spending plan aims to equitably serve 5,000 new Madison residents, promote violence prevention, prioritize affordable housing, and grow a diverse city workforce. 
Next year's proposed spending plan addresses needs created by this unprecedented COVID-19 pandemic. Um, at the same time, the city faces depressed revenue from economic challenges created by the public health crisis. Her proposal uses Federal American Rescue Plan funding and would bring the smallest increase at 1.1% in property taxes since 2003. So under her plan, taxes on the average value home currently assessed at $335,000 would increase by about $33.90. When the city began its budget process for 2022, it faced an $18 million deficit. Uh, that's a big deficit. Over half of that came from the city using one-time measures to balance the 2021 budget, including using an unprecedented $8 million from um, a balance called the Fund Balance, also known as the Rainy Day Fund, to offset severe revenue losses as a result of the pandemic. Um, the mayor would like to avoid future use of those funds by using one-time uh, you know, federal pandemic relief aid funds to support city services. And she hopes to reduce the use of rainy day funds to five and a half million by the end of 2022, using the federal aid for already budgeted government services costs and transferring funds from a recently closed taxing district. Um, at a press conference where she announced the budget on Tuesday, Rose Conway acknowledged this critical financial support from the federal government and, and also the state's use of some of that aid to support Madison. You know, she said that, you know, using these funds are an indicator that Madison's budget will continue to be difficult due to state mandated levy limits. Um, so those are sort of the, the key financial bits and pieces that are I think important to know. Um, and while the budget encompasses a lot, one key area is the additions she included to support the annexation of the town of Madison. So the town is going to cease to exist on October 31st of next year. And Rose Conway's budget includes $1.4 million to start extending services to the approximately 5,000 new residents. So to accommodate you know, the services that these residents will need, her budget includes four staff positions in the streets division for snow plowing and street sweeping and collecting garbage. It also includes eight police officers and 10 firefighters, as well as funding in the parks division budget for removing diseased ash trees. Her proposal also includes a new community connector position to connect with Spanish-speaking residents. Over 27% of the town of Madison's population is Hispanic, compared to 7% in the city. Additionally, the town's black population comprises 13%, compared to 7.3% in Madison. So next up, the Finance Committee and City Council members will have an opportunity to make changes to the mayor's proposal through the amendment process. The Finance Committee will vote on operating budget amendments on October 25th. The City Council's amendments will be voted on during budget deliberations, which begin in the week of November 10th. And we will keep a weathered eye on those budget deliberations. But for the time being, I've been joined on the other end of the line by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, as always, thanks so much for joining me this week. Thanks for having me as always. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, we've certainly been spoilt by our October heat wave. Yesterday's 69 degree high temperature actually felt cold compared to today's 77 or this past weekend's upper 70s and low 80s. This is our seventh day in a row now with double-digit above-normal temperatures, and as best I can tell, we've got another week of them coming at us, possibly more than that. 
Pardon me. Cloud cover the past couple of days was a little more persistent and widespread than we'd expected. The result of the closed mid-level low pressure circulation that's been wobbling around the eastern U.S. You can see that circulation on the water vapor image of North America that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage if you want to look at it. That uh, view stretches back a few days. And it shows that system basically retreating from a position around Saginaw, Michigan back on Monday and dropping way southwest down to around the Delta region of Mississippi before now starting back north again late this afternoon. The cloud cover has been low the past couple of days, but not terribly thick, and we got just enough dry air coming in from the east and north this afternoon to mix down while the center of the storm was well to our south and break up the cloud field that was overhead and give us some sun. And that was certainly welcome, since we'll now see the cloud cover thicken again more substantially with this storm's second passage to the north and east tomorrow and Friday. Indeed, I think we'll see moisture deepen enough even before dawn tomorrow to begin throwing down some light showers. No cold air to speak of will be coming in behind this storm after it passes. The water vapor shows substantial upper ridging over the eastern two-thirds or three-quarters of the continent now, stretching way north up into Nunavut. And that big ridge is going to remain over us for the coming several days while cold air and upper troughing out to the west and north are generally just forced northward around it through Canada. We'll see a secondary surface low develop and lift northeastward from about Colorado through northern Minnesota over this coming weekend. But that will primarily be a warm air driver for us here with strengthening southerly winds on Saturday taking us again perhaps near 80 degrees like we saw last weekend. A slightly stronger push of cool air rotating southeastward behind that second low will lay up a funnel boundary southwest to northeast across the area by the time we get later Sunday into Monday. But a follow-on low pressure cell from the southern plains will hold that boundary in place as it travels northeast along it on Monday, perhaps giving us a crack at some stronger thunderstorms at that time, stronger than we'll be seeing over the coming 48 hours. It's possible that a deeper and larger system then towards the end of next week may finally break our warmer-than-normal streak, but that's nothing certain at this point. Stay tuned. But back to tonight, uh, the model soundings are showing the mid-level winds veering more subtly and rapidly moistening the column as we get on towards about midnight or after, so I would expect clouds to thicken substantially at that time, if not before. With scattered showers then starting to work north or northwestward into the area by about, say, 4 or 5 a.m., temperatures will drop to the low 60s on east to southeast winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Tomorrow, passing showers may occasionally be heavy in the morning, but also should remain relatively scattered and be passing quickly north or northwestward across the region. It appears possible we may scatter out the precipitation then in the afternoon or evening, but I don't expect to see much clearing. Temperatures will be confined to the mid or possibly upper 60s tomorrow by cloud cover, and precipitation and easterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Skies will remain cloudy overnight with occasional passing showers on lighter southeasterly winds. And Friday, I'm expecting showers to wind down as we go through the day. And with some lifting and uh, possible clearing later on, we may make the low 70s on light southerly winds. We'll drop to around 60 during the overnight. And Saturday, southeasterly winds will increase and slowly veer more southerly, coming up to maybe 8 to 10 or 15 miles per hour by the end of the day. 
And with some sunshine, we may make 80 degrees, otherwise the upper 70s will stay balmy through the overnight into Sunday, up in the mid or even upper 60s, with upper 70s again likely on Sunday, despite increasing cloud cover. It is currently 66 degrees at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 53. Winds are out of the east at 9 miles per hour. Uh, just a few strands of all the cumulus overhead with some other high clouds, mostly to the south of Madison. Uh, the barometer's at 30.19 inches of mercury and steady over the past few hours. It's now 6.49 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. to October 1961. When fallout shelters were all the rage, a social disease was rampant, and Halloween hijinks took a disturbing turn. Stu Levitan has the news from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, October 1961. About 5,000 homes in the greater Madison area already have some sort of fallout shelter for protection against a nuclear war, a civil defense official tells a neighborhood group on the 3rd. Don Heimlich, the assistant civil defense director, tells a gathering in the Hill Farms area that, thanks to the widespread use of such shelters, future generations, quote, will regard dangers from radiation about the same as we regard dangers from cold weather. And Heimlich demonstrates a set of instruments to measure radioactivity so people will know when it is safe to go outside after a nuclear war. The instruments come in a kit, which will soon be available here for 1995. Building permits are still required for all fallout shelters, but no fee is charged and a property tax exemption is given for shelters which meet government standards. The Madison Board of Education is still waiting for guidance, however, on whether it should evacuate children in the case of nuclear attack or keep them in school. But the school board is still planning for a happier future buying 35 acres of the Monona Golf Course from the Parks Department for $105,000 for the new, as yet unnamed, Far East Side High School. The Parks Department will use the funds to buy land beyond the East Belt Line for a future golf course. In urban renewal news, the director of the Madison Redevelopment Authority pleads with realtors to let blacks being displaced by the Triangle Project look at homes throughout the city and not just in the so-called traditional neighborhoods. 
Roger Rupp now says realtors should not take it upon themselves to steer blacks towards the areas where the realtor thinks they should live, but show them all houses they are financially qualified to buy. In a related development, a coalition of church groups called the Coordinating Committee of Social Concerns proposes a voluntary list of people willing to sell or rent housing to blacks and other minorities. The Mayor's Commission on Human Rights says it will study the idea. And Zachary Trotter, whose Tuxedo Cafe on West Washington Avenue is the only black-owned tavern in Madison, finally gets his building permit for a new bar at 1616 Beld Street. Forced to move because he's in the way of the Brittingham Urban Renewal District, Trotter has been trying for more than a year to relocate. The council, bowing to neighborhood pressures, rejected two earlier attempts. And in other civil rights news, the UW Student Council for Civil Rights presents $1,150 to James Farmer, the National Director of the Congress of Racial Equality, to pay the fines and bail for freedom riders arrested and jailed while trying to desegregate interstate buses in the Deep South. The council raised the money, which Farmer says is the largest donated by any college organization, in a two-week campaign that found its sole success on campus. We tried to reach the greater Madison area, but couldn't, Council Chair Ron Corwin says. The burgeoning crisis in Berlin hits home as a troop train pulls out of the Milwaukee Road Depot on the 24th, taking Madison and area men in the 32nd Infantry Division of the Wisconsin National Guard, the fabled Red Arrow Division, to Fort Lewis, Washington, and into a full year of active military duty in the United States Army. Cases of venereal disease are increasing so rapidly, City Health Commissioner Charles Kincaid says on the 25th, that the rate is now up to about one a day, compared to 30 all of last year and 22 in 1959. Kincaid says he has no explanation for the increase and that cases are scattered throughout the city. In an unrelated development two days later, the Wisconsin State Journal announces it will reject certain movie advertising that, quote, a large number of our readers find salacious and prurient. Area clergy and many readers applaud the move. It's a notable month for roads and highways. On the 6th, the 52-mile, $29 million I-9094 highway from Madison to Wisconsin Dells opens. And five years after city planners proposed a divided expressway from Proudfit Street to Midvale Boulevard, the council takes its first action to build the road. On the 26th, it sets a 66-foot setback on College Court to create a matching one-way road with Regent Street from North Murray Street to Monroe Street, where cars will connect through a roundabout with a freeway to be built on the old Illinois Central Roadbed. That same night, a big win for mayor and trucking company president Henry Reynolds as the council designates Midvale Boulevard for heavy truck traffic. Citywide, 20% of the 379 miles of streets remain unpaved. On campus, great artists from different generations and disciplines. On the 6th, jazz pianist Oscar Peterson headlines the university's third annual Jazz Festival, which also features local trumpeter Dr. Haven and a showing of Jazz on a Summer Day. And on the 16th, our most beloved poet, 
87-year-old Robert Frost captivates a capacity crowd at the Union Theater with anecdote, observation, and poetry, especially stopping by woods on a snowy evening and his closing piece, Birches. Elsewhere on campus, the Daily Cardinal names three-sports star Pat Richter the Sports Badger of the Month. An All-American candidate at left end, Richter is first in the Big Ten and 14th in the nation in pass receptions and has scored the Badgers' only touchdown in their first two games. And Halloween brings a night of malicious mischief as police respond to more than a dozen complaints of vandalism, property destruction, and hooliganism. At the McDonald's Drive-In, 3317 University Avenue, more than 200 youngsters throw firecrackers, eggs, and vegetables at cars, even the squad cars sent to the scene. The restaurant closes at the cop's request, but reopens an hour later. When it does, the barrage resumes and continues until police return and threaten the troublemakers with arrest. And a far more disturbing bit of Fright Night deviltry, as someone spray-paints swastikas and the word Jew on the walls and windows of the kosher delicatessen and meat market at 301 South Mill Street, owned by Selig Iwanter, the only survivor of a family wiped out by the Nazis in Vilna, Lithuania. Police say the anti-Semitic vandalism was probably the work of neighborhood teens. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitin. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And thanks especially to all of you who were able to contribute to our pledge drive the past couple of weeks. It's through your contributions that we're able to keep this news source independent of commercial influence. Your reporter tonight was Jade Isiri Ramos. Special thanks to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast, and Ken Brady is our on-air engineer. Shali Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.